The reading this evening can be found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. That's on page 1031 in the Church Bible. Luke, chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his own town, hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was sent, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Knowing Jesus, that's the series of sermons in the evenings here at uh, Long Crendon. And clearly it's an important subject. One, indeed, that continues to stir up uh, controversy even 2,000 years after his death. 
Indeed, only last week there was a book published with the interesting title, Kosher Jesus. Written, uh, a writing on his website, the author, Rabbi Shmuley Botech, author of the international blockbuster Kosher Sex, describes the book as a project of more than six years, he took it very seriously, of research and of writing. And he comes up with the conclusion that the book seeks to offer Jews and Christians the real story of Jesus, which he claims is nothing other than a holy, observant rabbi who fought Roman paganism and oppression and was killed for it. Surprisingly, the book uh, has been under attack uh, in the States, um, not from Christians, but from rabbis, um, who are branding it as heretical, because for Jews, the title is a contradiction in terms, and even to say the name Jesus is regarded as blasphemous. How vital, therefore, how important, how appropriate it is that we should seek to discover who Jesus was, not from an American rabbi, but from the authoritative word of God. Tonight's Bible passage tells us of an occasion early in his ministry when Jesus' identity was being debated hotly. It speaks to us about Jesus the prophet. So, what comes to your mind when I say the word prophet? Well, with banks always in the news, I imagine your first thought is of profit and loss accounts. Uh, But no, I said prophet, not profit. So, what comes to your mind? Is it some grey-haired old man with a beard? Or one with a stern face and a halo? There's a good definition of a prophet in the Bible, actually. Uh, When at the end of his life, Moses was talking to the people of Israel. And he says, uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 17, The Lord said to me, that's to Moses, I will raise up for them, that's for Israel, a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. A prophet is someone who is called by God to proclaim God's message. He has God's words in his mouth. And so Moses was, if you like, a a prototype prophet called by God, proclaiming God's words. And God did indeed call many others to follow him, major prophets, minor prophets, people who proclaimed the word of God throughout the Old Testament times. And then there was 400 years of silence, 400 years without any prophetic utterances at all, until we come to the New Testament, when we encounter Simeon, Anna, John the Baptist, each of whom prophetically points towards Jesus. Jesus Christ, the greatest prophet of all. 
But before we dive into tonight's passage, let's just remind ourselves of the context, the things that we have learned so far already about Jesus in the authoritative account that Luke provides for us. In chapter 3, verse 21, we read, um, when all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And a voice came down from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We learned, haven't we, that Jesus was man and God. And then in verse uh, 23 of chapter 3, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when his ministry began. So we learnt that Jesus, um, as a man, grew for many years before embarking upon public ministry. And then verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, but was without sin. And having been led in the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the same Spirit. So yes, Jesus was indeed a Jew. That is not a controversial statement. But he was not, as Rabbi Shmuley Botech claims, merely a rabbi. Jesus was the ultimate fulfilment of Moses' prophecy. A prophet called by God. And of course, more than that, he was the son of God. And in tonight's passage, we have almost an overture to Jesus' earthly ministry. A bit like an overture to an opera. We see the themes that unfold in Jesus' ministry and the ministry of Jesus the prophet. We see first a prophet praised. And then a prophet challenged. And finally, a prophet rejected. So would you open your Bibles at Luke chapter 4, verse 14. It's on page 1031. And we see first a prophet praised. After a time of teaching and performing miracles in Capernaum, Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth, verse 16, where, as we heard last week, as his custom was on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue. He read a portion of the prophet Isaiah pointing forwards to the coming Messiah. And as he sat down to preach in the midst of the community in which he had grown up, he says, today, verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, throughout Isaiah, there's this strange anointed one that we read about who will perform the Lord's will. And it's always, it's always in the future. But Jesus says, today, today, present tense, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's doubtful if any of the worshippers in Nazareth, Jesus' own family and friends, really understood what he was saying. People amongst whom he had grown up and learned his trade as a carpenter. 
But their response started positively enough. Just look at verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious, at, at the gracious words. Literally, the, the words of grace that came from his lips. But the extent of their failure to understand is obvious from the rest of the verse. You see, they knew him so well, this local boy made good. Celebrity culture may have been uh, given an additional oxygen in the 20th century, but its origins go back a long way. And we might imagine how, with many a knowing nudge and a delighted smile, they turned to one another and said, isn't this Joseph's son? Do you see the question there in verse 22? Isn't this Joseph's son? And the answer is no. No, a million times no. At the voice, as the voice of Jesus' baptism had declared, as the family tree had revealed, as the devil himself had admitted, this is not Jesus, Joseph's son, this is the son of God. You see, even as they sat there listening to Jesus in the flesh, speaking to them, the people filtered his teaching through the sieve of their own misunderstanding, their own preconceptions. And so their praise was superficial. The question that you and I, therefore, have to ask ourselves this evening is this, what preconceptions do we have as we encounter Jesus through the pages of Scripture? Sadly, for many young people today, their only preconception is of the name of Jesus as a swear word. I actually heard a true story of a boy who, on being told that Jesus was God's son, asked why God would give his son the name of a swear word. Many people in this country today are happy to praise Jesus, aren't they, as a good moral teacher. A prophet even, but no more than that. And their praise is superficial. But even as Christians, folks, even as Christians, our reading of Scripture can be too readily filtered by our cultural spectacles the spectacles through which we read the Bible. With the result that we sanitise Jesus' teaching. We disregard, for example, all that he has to say to us about judgment, or giving, or fasting, to name just a few tricky subjects. Let us not fall into the trap of thinking that we know Jesus so well that we fail to hear what he has to say to us today. So we see a prophet praised. But then, secondly, we see a prophet challenged. It seems that Jesus sensed their limited understanding and hardness of heart. So he anticipated their demand, verse 23, to do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Imagine the, the hometown of a, um, 
winner of Britain's Got Talent. Wanting their star to perform before them some of the wonderful things that they had seen on television. Of course, they didn't have television then, but you, you get the picture. But Jesus, Jesus is having nothing of it. Verse 24, I tell you the truth, he continued, more literally, truly, I tell you, emphasizing the truth of what follows. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Or as Mark Twain later put it, an expert is an ordinary fellow from another town. After Jesus' testing in the wilderness, we read uh, chapter 4, verse 13, that the devil left him until an opportune time. I wonder, I just wonder, was this one such opportune moment? You know, what better way it would have been for Jesus to silence his, the doubters there and then, the, the doubtings and the murmurings and the Nazarenes, than to perform some miraculous sign? But what did Jesus say to the devil in the wilderness? He said, man does not live on bread alone. And the continuation of that quote from Deuteronomy is pertinent here. He he goes on to say, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's pertinent because it is to the scriptures that Jesus points them here. Chapter 4, verse 25. I assure you, He says, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. You see, the context of this reference is that when Ahab became king of Israel, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He was a bad king. More bad, in fact, than uh, any of the kings before him. So the prophet Elijah announced uh, to the king that drought would come upon the land. God sent Elijah to a brook where he was fed by ravens and a watering hole, but then the watering hole dried up. And so God sent Elijah to a poor widow in Sidon, which significantly is outside Israel's borders. The widow was in fact so poor that when Elijah met her, she was gathering sticks with which to bake a cake using the last piece of flour that she had, after which she expected to die along with her son. And yet, despite her desperate state, despite the starvation that she faced, she shared with Elijah that little loaf of bread that she was able to make. And as a result of that, God provided miraculously for the widow, for her son, and for Elijah. The point being, you see, that the people of Israel had rejected God. They had rejected God's prophet. They had failed to acknowledge their need. But this impoverished, 
widow, this foreigner, recognised her need and accepted God's promise of help. And in case his meaning wasn't clear enough, Jesus makes the same point with a second illustration. Look at verse 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, and yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Another prophet, another example of God's miraculous provision. This time, healing of Naaman, a a military commander of the Syrian army. He was afflicted by leprosy. And this this powerful man, you see, was at the complete opposite end of the social spectrum from the widow. He didn't like the idea of being uh, healed. But at the, at the suggestion of an Israelite prisoner of war, he took the letter, uh, a letter from his king to the king of Israel. The king of Israel referred him to Elisha, who offered him a cure by bathing in the river Jordan. And Naaman wasn't keen on that. Indignantly refused, but was eventually prevailed upon by his servants. You see, in the end, like the widow, he responded to the man of God with faith. And so received God's blessing. The Jews of Jesus' time were waiting for God to liberate them from pagan enemies. But instead, Jesus points out that when the prophets were active, it wasn't Israel that benefited. It was the uh, pagans themselves. And Jesus effectively says to them, you people are no different from your ancestors. It was a word of judgment. Not at all what they wanted to hear. So what about you and me? Are we willing to respond in faith to a God who provides, to a God who heals? Do we challenge Jesus to prove himself? Or are we ready to hear his gracious words and and to take them to heart? Are we ready to acknowledge our need of God's uh, healing in our lives? Clearly, Jesus' message got through this time and the people who had initially praised Jesus and subsequently challenged Jesus ultimately rejected Jesus. Look at verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Possibly as a prelude to stoning, certainly with the intention of killing him. Why were they so angry? (laughs) Because they got the message. And they didn't like it. You see, they thought they were A-OK, thank you very much. We're the chosen ones, they thought. How could you possibly say that the Gentiles have anything to teach us? Jesus, the prophet, like prophets before him, was challenging their, their religion. 
And uh, even as religious people, they would rather kill Jesus than kill their religion and accept his words of grace. What is the difference between religion and grace? It's simple, isn't it? Grace, a religion is what, about what we do for God. Grace is about what God does for us. Religion is about how we earn favour from God. Grace is about how God gives us righteousness. But this was not Jesus' time to die. And verse 30, he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Given the size of the crowd, this is really quite surprising. Indeed, it's ironic that whilst in the wilderness, the devil had invited Jesus to throw himself down from a high place because God would protect him. So perhaps Luke is telling us here that on this occasion, God did protect him by his heavenly angels. Because it came about not through some trite self-advertisement, but by following his calling. Even so, fundamentally, I think this story is about rejection. And in rejecting Jesus, the prophet, Jesus, the the people rejected God's message of salvation. There is no record that Jesus ever returned to Nazareth. He was gone forever. And for the most part, that remains true of the Jewish people today. It's tragic that although Jesus was a Jew, although all the first disciples were Jews, although Paul, the apostle, was a Jew, most Jews today reject Jesus. Although, as we heard last week, they pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, you, O King, are our helper, saviour and shield. They still see Jesus as the son of Joseph and not as the voice affirmed at his baptism, the son of God. And Paul wears his heart on his sleeve when writing to the church in Rome about the Jews, chapter 10, verse 1. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They did not accept the truth of who Jesus said he was. But, friends, let us not be lulled into self-righteous accusation of others. As with, if you like, the the chorales in Bach's great oratorios, which invite the listener to acknowledge our part in the story, we must ask ourselves in what ways we might reject Jesus. Could it be 
theology, for example? Do our preconceptions deafen us to the truth that we read about in the Bible? Do we become so familiar with Jesus, so complacent, as Jeff said last week, that we no longer respond to what Jesus says to us? Or is it control? Have we become so focused on what we want Jesus to do for us that we ignore his offer of abundant life? We reject Jesus when we say, it's all about me, where is my miracle? And fail to take his offer of salvation to the nations. Or is it embarrassment? I mean, let's face it, worshipping Jesus doesn't get you many cool points anyway. But it wasn't comfortable for the widow to share her last loaf of bread with Elijah. It wasn't comfortable for Naaman to strip off publicly and bathe in the River Jordan. Let us not reject Jesus because of those, how those around us might react. Or could it be pride? Because whether we rely on ourselves or whether we rely on our religion, most people reject Jesus for the same reason that the people in Nazareth did. Because we think we can manage just fine on our own. Thank you very much. But the truth is that we are as needy as the widow. We are as helpless as the leper. And we need Jesus. Well, as I mentioned earlier, this episode is a cameo of Jesus' whole earthly ministry. And at the outset, Jesus was followed by huge crowds. He was a prophet praised. But the praise was superficial and and based on, on misunderstanding. But as Jesus spelt out the cost of discipleship, the crowd started to fall away. He became a prophet constantly challenged by the religious establishment and ultimately Jesus was rejected by all but a faithful few. They didn't kill Jesus on this occasion, but ultimately they did at the right time, his time. And when Jesus died on the cross, he opened up a a way of salvation. A salvation from God, apart from law. Righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Hallelujah, what a saviour. This is a challenging passage for me because it's all about rejection. And yet... Let me leave you with a final word of encouragement. I think it is an encouragement as well, because as we read this passage, we see Jesus himself speaking about himself in the flesh, about gracious words, and he was rejected. As we share our faith with people about Jesus. We can take comfort from the fact that this passage makes plain, as time and again in the New Testament, that the gospel is good news for everyone. And yet, 
The people of Nazareth rejected Jesus. The people today reject reject Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised by that when people respond with disinterest or even opposition. Jesus the prophet was controversial in his time on earth and he remains controversial today. But may we be amongst those who respond with faith to Jesus' gracious offer of salvation. 